minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show, folks. Glad you could join us for another provocative and hopefully interesting hour on parenting, as we now call it uh, in this day and time. Um, and in that regard, you know, the raising of children was not called really anything 50-plus years ago. Uh, people sometimes say, well, why do you say in this day and time it's now called parenting? Well, because it wasn't called anything. I mean, my mother just said, this is my child, John. And uh, people didn't talk about this uh, thing that we now call parenting. There I go again, uh, very much because people understood in previous generations that uh, the raising of a child was a very natural process, that God had given us the ability, he had written on our hearts all that we needed to know about children and how to raise them properly. You didn't need to be a very uh, a highly intelligent person, and you didn't need to read a lot in order to do a good job, and history uh, confirms that. We have lost common sense when it comes to children in America, and a good example of that is the fact that Washington State's Mercer Island School District recently banned the playground game of tag. That's right. Kids can no longer run around on a Mercer Island school playground, tap one another, and yell, you're it. School administrators justified the ban by saying they were protecting the physical, quote, physical and emotional safety of children. Apparently, being it is demeaning. It lowers self-esteem or something. Mind you, the Seattle-area school system outlawed playground tag without any evident provocation whatsoever. There were no freakish, traumatic incidents. Nobody broke any bones. Nobody suffered any concussions. And there was no complaint from parents. According to a local television station, in fact... Mercer Island parents didn't know about the ban until their kids came home and started talking about it. Once they found out, parents got together, created a closed Facebook group to communicate a strategy for convincing the school district to overturn the ban. That Facebook page has currently over 400 members, and uh, they have not been successful at uh, persuading the school system to reinstate TAG. Too dangerous, too emotionally threatening. Uh, the Facebook page reads, The game tag 
was recently prohibited by Mercer Island Schools. Our group believes tag and other child-led games encourage independence and much-needed activity, and we want to bring tag back. Yep, I agree with that. So, that's the first point I'd like to make. Yes, children desperately need games that are not micromanaged by adults. The child games of my youth, baseball, basketball, you know, everything under the sun, have turned into adult micromanaged performance events as in spectator sports. It is important to note that the Mercer Island schools had no overt reason to ban TAG. They just did. Their reason, again, to protect the physical and emotional health of children. That just doesn't fly. I have found no reported incident of a child being seriously injured while playing tag. Do kids fall down and skin their knees and bump their heads and stuff like that? Yes. But if there had been a serious injury in the course of playing tag somewhere in America, it would be somewhere on the Internet. It's not. And the kids weren't coming home and complaining to their parents that being tagged was emotionally traumatic. These were not kids who were coming home, curling up at a corner, sucking their thumbs and moaning quietly because they had lost at the game of tag. No injuries, no emotional trauma, no kids having emotional breakdowns going into catatonic stupors or trying to cut themselves after being tagged. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is liberalism, folks, pure and simple. Listen to what Mercer Island School District Communications Director Mary Grady offered as a rationale for the ban. The Mercer Island School District, and I'm quoting from her release, and school teams have recently revisited expectations for student behavior to address student safety. This means that while at play, especially during recess and unstructured times, students are expected to keep their hands to themselves. The rationale behind this is to ensure the physical and emotional safety of all students. End of quote. Okay, did you catch that? Buried in the verbiage was this line, During recess and unstructured time, children are expected to keep their hands to themselves. Aha! What's behind this is liberal hysteria about so-called touching or inappropriate touching. This hysteria began maybe 25 years ago by my accounting. Touching of any sort, you know, in this case, tapping a person on the shoulder, violates another person's physical and emotional boundaries and could lead to who knows what. These people are hysterical in every sense of the term. On the one hand, they don't want kids touching one another, even during as innocent a game as tag. On the other, they encourage boys to believe they're really girls and girls to believe they're really boys. No tag, but we can have transgender bathrooms where kids of one gender are watching kids from another gender use the bathroom. That's not emotionally traumatic. Apparently, it would have been if I was a kid. A columnist named Lenore Skenazi was appropriately outraged, and she writes, Once again, we have an age-old childhood tradition that is suddenly too dangerous for this generation of kids. 
Miss Skenazi is right as far as she goes, but she's not going far enough. She is outraged simply because a game that's been around for 450 years, uh, you know, from the historical records that we can uncover, has been banned. Uh, why is it uh, suddenly dangerous if it wasn't dangerous for the last 450 years? But the reason I say she's not going far enough is that Miss Ganazi apparently doesn't understand that this is what liberalism is all about. This is liberalism, this ban. It's liberalism, pure and simple, and let me explain why. Liberalism is all about control, folks. This Mercer Island School District incident is simply another in a growing number of examples of government agencies, which many people forget public schools are, these are examples of government agencies believing that they, not parents, are the best judge of what is and is not right for children. Karl Marx, the 19th century philosopher and father of communism, socialism, the most deadly political philosophy of all time, clearly said that in order for socialism to succeed, the authority of parents over children had to be declared null and void, and the state had to step in. That's what this Mercer Island thing is all about. It's about liberal elites deciding that they, in their liberal magnificence, know what is best for the rest of us. And don't think that this sort of thing is not coming to a school system near you because it is. This is John Roseman. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, folks. This is your host, John Roseman. The show's name is Because I Said So. We're carried exclusively on the American Family Radio Network. My thanks to them. By the way, back in the spring, I recorded four 30-minute videos at American Family Studios in Tupelo, Mississippi. And you, if you want to learn more, even more about me, you can go to that website, afastore.net, and uh, four videos uh, on the issue of parenting, different permutations concerning the subject. Uh, as most of you who have been listening to the show to this point know, this is a radio call-in show. We've taken a lot of calls from listeners. But this show is going to be devoted exclusively to emails that we have received, beginning with an email about a two-year-old. And the email begins, our son is a month from being two years old, so 23 months of age. We are concerned about his throwing behavior. During a recent dinner in a restaurant, he threw a fork that whizzed by a lady's head just missing her eye. I took a building block to the lip the other day, and Grandma got a metal car to the forehead. The articles that I've read, I guess she's been reading Parents Magazine and other toxic publications, just say that throwing is a way of exploring cause-effect relationships. We've tried consistent timeouts, redirecting, ignoring, and getting down to his level and telling him no. But his throwing just keeps getting worse and worse. 
He starts school in August, and I am anticipating a lot of bad incident reports. Do you have any suggestions? Well, yeah, I think I do. But uh, the first thing I have to ask is why you would go into a restaurant with a 23-month-old child who has a habit of throwing things at people. Uh, Would you take a dog that has a habit of biting people to a park and let it off the leash? Okay, I don't mean to be insulting, but this is purely a matter of common sense, which, as many, many commentators have remarked, seems to be in short supply these days. I should not need to tell you or anyone else that until the child's throwing stops, you need for the public good to keep him out of places where he can pick up solid objects and wing them at unsuspecting strangers. In that event, the cause and effect just might be the following. Cause injury to people, people get lawyers. To be perfectly clear, I don't think that toddlers should be allowed in restaurants that have wait staffs. And by that, I mean toddlers should be allowed in restaurants that uh, are fast food restaurants and no other kinds of restaurants. You restaurant has a wait staff, you don't take a toddler in there because of the high likelihood, regardless of the toddler, regardless of the family, regardless of the parents and the training that they've done to that point, the high likelihood that a toddler is going to create a disruption in the restaurant, which, by the way, is why many, many restaurants in America today are either asking people not to bring children younger than 10 into the restaurant or have created child-free zones for people like my wife and myself who really don't enjoy sitting next to kids who are being loud and disruptive while you're eating. So, yes, two-year-olds are known for throwing things. The things you've been reading are correct. And yes, throwing is a way of exploring cause and effect relationships. But the most immediate and fascinating effect in this case is that everyone gets upset. That is the payoff. You tell me you've tried consistent timeouts, but then you tell me you've also tried several other consequences, including ignoring what, pray tell, is consistent about trying all manner of consequences. The answer, nothing. And even if you did use timeout consistently, it probably wouldn't stop the throwing. Timeout, a few minutes in a chair, is the weakest, and you can take this to the bank, folks, not just the people who asked this question, but all of you, uh, the weakest disciplinary consequence that has ever been invented. Timeout works with kids who are already well-behaved. I've said that over a thousand times in my career. Furthermore, timeout does not work when the misbehavior in question is above two on a scale of one to ten, And believe me, throwing things at people, even if you're 23 months old, is an 8, at least, on a scale of 1 to 10. 
When your son, let, let's, let's get to the solution. When your son throws something or even acts like he's thinking about throwing something, you need to put him in his room and gate him in there for at least 15 minutes. Even 30 minutes is not too long for a child this age. If your son is too strong for a gate, then cut a door in half, cut the child's door in half, rehang it, turn the knob around so that it can be locked from the outside. If neither of you, neither you or your husband, is skilled enough with tools to do that, then contribute to some handyman's standard of living. Uh, a very easy thing to do, just cut a door in half, create what used to be called a Dutch door, turn the lock around, and uh, you can put the child in the room and uh, lock him in there. <gasps> that raises a lot of hackles with people. Uh, locks are traumatic. No, they're not. Children get upset when they can't get out of a room. Uh, note, I do not recommend that the door be a solid door cut in half so the child can look out, can see out, and so that you can walk over to the door and speak softly to the child and say, when you're done being upset, call my name and I'll come and I'll let you out, or words to that effect. Uh, this is not traumatic for a child at all. When you put him in his room, back to the question at hand, you must do so without the slightest show of emotion, as if you're just following a formula. You needn't even say no. Your son is a very smart kid. He'll get the message. If he screams for the entire 15 minutes, so be it. The experience will not scar him, I assure you. It will, however, make an impression. And that's what you need to make. When his time is up, just let him out. Don't lecture him. Try to make him confess or apologize. Just walk over to the door pop the lock, open the door slightly, and walk off, going on your merry way, prepared to do the same thing the next time throwing behavior occurs. Consistently done, I predict that this will cure your son's throwing in no more than six weeks. Even then, no restaurants with wait staff until he's at least five years old, please, for the rest of us. Thank you. Okay, we're going on to another question from parents of a 13-month-old who's become used to napping while they hold her, the mother holds her, which the mother writes, I started when she was a very small baby during a horrible bout of teething. Not surprisingly, she now will not sleep on her own during the day except in the car, but even then she wakes up at the sensation of being placed in her crib and begins screaming immediately. Once the screaming starts, I've not been able to get her to nap at all. Also, I think her nighttime sleep has started suffering because of this. At six months, she slept well through the night and would only wake briefly once or twice to be breastfed. Now, however, she wakes several times or more and I end up breastfeeding her back to sleep just to get some peace. How can I help her learn to soothe herself during the day, and will that make a difference at night? Okay, well, as you've learned somewhat the hard way, infants who are held and rocked to sleep or whose parents lie down with them to get them to sleep fail to learn what is called self-comforting. Self-comforting to be very explicit about that. 
and the devil eventually is going to have to be paid. At this point, you're going to have to bite the bullet, put her down for a nap at the same time every day, and let her slowly and painfully at this point, you know, the older the child is, the more painful this is going to be for the child, which is why I encourage parents to never get this started in the first place by rocking and lying down with children and so on and so forth. Let her slowly and painfully learn to put herself asleep. While she's crying, go in every five minutes or so to simply reassure her that you're still there. You can walk into the room. You can lay her back down if she's standing up in her crib. You can rub her tummy, rub her back, uh, reassure her, honey, I'm still here. Everything's okay. Mommy and daddy love you. We're in the living room. Uh, don't linger for more than 30 seconds. Walk back out of the room. Uh, don't pick her up. Uh, don't linger any longer than that. Just make an appearance, leave, and repeat the sequence until she's asleep. And... Um, that is probably the first night going to take, uh, oh my goodness, it's, it, it may take several hours. Uh, this is time well invested in your future and her future as well. Make an appearance, leave, repeat the sequence until she's asleep. If she's not asleep by the time a normal nap would end, pick her up. Wait until bedtime. I can also tell you that the earlier within limits that you put her to bed, the better whether she takes a nap or not. Again, the first time that you do this at night, it may take three hours or more for her to get to sleep. If this happens during a nap and she's crying still at the end of, say, two hours when her nap would end, pick her up and wait until bedtime and start over again. Uh, is this traumatic? No, it's upsetting. It's painful. It's emotionally painful. Uh, it's anguishing for a child. It is not traumatic. This procedure will not, I guarantee you, leave any permanent emotional scars. And this is in her best interest and your best interest as well. Uh, you do not want a child who is five or six years old sleeping with you. At the beginning of this segment, I mentioned that this is a call-in program. It is. And the number is 404-419-6499. You can email me your questions if you'd prefer that medium at radio at rosemond, R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. When we return, a look at a school system that doesn't want kids to lose games during recess. You got to be kidding me. I'm John Roseman, because I said so, back in a moment. American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Uh, thanks for staying with us, folks. You know, at the beginning of the uh, program, in the first segment, I talked about uh, the Mercer Island School District and the fact that they have banned the playground game of tag uh, supposedly to protect the physical and emotional well-being of children. And I ended that uh, commentary by saying, don't think that this is not coming to a school district near you. And uh, in the interim, 
a friend of mine who lives in the Atlanta, Georgia area sent me uh, a, um, a news flash uh, that hits the nail right on the head, uh, is exactly what I'm talking about. Here is uh, the Minnesota schools. This is the title of the internet piece. Minnesota schools, and they're referring to Edina, Minnesota, which is a suburb, a relatively upscale, in fact, uh, suburb. I've spoken there a couple of times of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, hired a recess consultant to make sure that no children lose when playing playground games. Now, you know, if you're my age, I'm 68, um, you read stuff like this, and I want to tell you, you just, for those younger people in my audience, and maybe you're doing it too, I don't know, but uh, when you're my age, you just read stuff like this, and you don't quite believe uh, that that this is really happening in a country that you grew up in called the United States of America. It's just outrageous. It's absurd. It's ludicrous. It's unbelievable. And yet, this stuff is happening. And I said, this is liberalism, folks. These are government agencies. And, and I will remind you, public schools are government schools. Teachers are government employees. Administrators are government employees. These are government agencies, just like the Department of Social Services, the Department of Sanitation. This is a liberal organization dominated by liberals deciding they know what's best for children. Parents do not know what's best for children. And I will tell you, at the risk of sounding like a maniac here, that both Adolf Hitler and Karl Marx said that in order for socialism to succeed, and let us not mistake, people think Nazi Germany was called fascism. Well, that is a variation on socialism. It is national socialism. Both Hitler and Karl Marx said that in order for socialism to succeed, the authority of the state had to trump the authority of parents over children in the home. And that's what's going on here, is this constant, insidious, slow, inexorable slide towards socialism in America, which is what is so disturbing to people my age, most people my age, who have come to their senses. And I'm, you know, I'm a recovering liberal. I understand liberalism very, very well. Most people my age are recovering liberals, as a matter of fact, the people that I run into anyway. And, and we're just shocked at what is happening in this country and what people are allowing to have happen. The Adina Elementary Schools, back to Minnesota, worried about the politics of the playground, have taken the unusual step of hiring a recess consultant to police the playground and make sure that games are A, inclusive, and B, that nobody loses and suffers some emotional trauma as a consequence of losing, uh, being second, being third, whatever. Um, you know, another thing that just blows the minds of people my age, we all lost. Every game we played, somebody lost, and sometimes it was you, and there is not one person 
in my generation I have ever spoken to, and maybe they're out there somewhere in the world, but there is not one person in my generation I have ever spoken to who says that losing a game when they were a child was emotionally traumatic. There is not one person my age who has ever, as an adult, had to go seek therapy for memories of losing games when we were children. This stuff is absurd. Uh, Some Edina school system parents have welcomed the arrival of these playground consultants. Uh, Others have not welcomed this very well at all. One parent said the philosophy of Playworks, which is the company that the Edina public school system hired for $30,000 a year to police the playground while children play or while children used to play, uh, the philosophy of Playworks does not fit the school that my children attend. It is a structured philosophy an intervention philosophy, right, it's another example of adults playing big government with children, micromanaging the play of children. Uh, And this is liberalism. It's big government. It's adults believing they have to provide big government to children and control everything that children do to make sure that children don't do anything that the liberal elites in this country think is inappropriate. And yet the liberal elites are doing things to children that are highly inappropriate. In school districts like San Francisco, transgender bathrooms, which I referred to earlier, uh, where, you know, girls and boys go into the bathroom together. You may be a boy standing at the urinal and suddenly a girl comes in. If you are a third grade boy, you are not going to be comfortable with that. I will tell you, you are going to be a lot more comfortable losing at a game on the playground than you are that. But these liberal elites think, no, that's what children need to experience, but they don't need to experience losing on the playground. Anyway, uh, the mother said it is a structured philosophy, it is an intervention philosophy, and it doesn't allow children free play. I agree 100%. Uh, The solution is not to get rid of Playworks in the Edina Public Schools, by the way. The solution is to eliminate the Department of Education in this country. But that is a different segment altogether. Here's a question that came in from a listener. My husband and I have micromanaged, spoiled, and enabled our 21-year-old son all of his life. Now, generally speaking, I wouldn't deal with a 21-year-old, but this is still a child if you listen. We paid a heavy price during his teenage years. At this point, he is arrogant, immature, and irresponsible. So, in other words, he's 21 years old chronologically. He's about nine uh, developmentally and emotionally. For example, he recently went online and posted a vile comment about his former girlfriend. When we confronted him about it, he told us she deserved it. We realized the error of our ways, but our need to protect him from the consequences of his impulsivity and irresponsibility is so strong at this point that we can't seem to break the habit. On the positive side, he holds down a good job and is also going to college Can you give us some advice? Well, I never thought when I began writing a newspaper column in 1976 
began writing books in 1982 that parents would ever ask me for advice concerning problems with young adult children. At the age of 21, I'd already been married for over a year, and uh, many of my peers were married. At the age of 21, my first child was born. Uh, the kind of stuff, the kind of problems that today's parents are describing with 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, etc., year old children, is just mind-boggling to people my age. Um, over the past 10 years, as the pigeons of what I call postmodern psychological parenting have come home to roost, more and more parents are asking me questions about what to do about adult children, and they are definitely still children who are still living at home. Um, for 40 years and counting, American parents have raised children in a manner that emphasize feelings over rational thought and good citizenship. With rare exception, post-1960s parenting experts encourage parents to focus on the inner child, allow their children to express feelings freely and other kinds of nonsense. In the home and in America's public schools, training children to think straight and prepare them for responsible adulthoods took a back seat to helping them feel good about themselves and protecting them from failure and disappointment, as in losing games on the playgrounds of the public schools of Edina, Minnesota. The result is Generation E, that's what I call them, self-absorbed young adults who have a high sense of entitlement and low regard for others. When feelings are not controlled by rational thinking, they drive behavior that is often irresponsible, self-dramatic, and destructive to self and others. When the goal of parenting was to teach a child to think properly and act responsibly, that description rarely applied to a child above age 12, which is why coming-of-age rituals like the Jewish bar mitzvah took place around a child's 13th birthday. Today's parents have bought into the myth that behavior of the above sort is normal for teenagers, so they don't expect much more than that, and they don't get much more than they expect. The clarity of hindsight can be painful indeed, especially when it regards a child, but you, the parents of this 21-year-old, have an opportunity here to redeem yourselves. I know you would say you love your son, but let me challenge you. Love is doing for someone what they need, not what they want. Your son needs for you to stop enabling. He needs you to emancipate him. The only cure for his irresponsibility and feelings of entitlement is being out on his own, having to pay his own bills, solve his own problems, and so on. He has no reason to wake up and smell this particular cup of coffee. If you continue to serve as his safety net, yes, it's going to be painful for all concerned. But as the saying goes, no pain, no gain. As I mentioned at the start of today's program, I'm going through a stack of emails today to radio at roseman.com. I'm John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. We are a parenting show. That's what they call it these days. They don't call it raising children anymore. The show exists to try and resurrect traditional, biblically-based parenting in America. 
and I hope I'm succeeding. You can call us at 404-419-6499. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. Welcome back to the show, folks. Uh, As I said earlier, this show has been devoted almost exclusively to emails received from listeners. And here's one from the parents of a 17-year-old girl who is described by her parents as an honor student who's been accepted to three colleges. Her most recent boyfriend, the parents write, is a wonderful kid and very smart. Apparently, both our daughter and her boyfriend resent our rule that a parent must be at home when either of them is visiting at the other one's home. But they've gone along with it, however reluctantly. They are both good, moral kids who've taken the chastity pledge And they both insist that if we allow them unsupervised time, they won't misbehave. What do you think? Okay. I, in fact, do have some thoughts about this that some people may not agree with. But I'm going to leap right ahead with uh, bravado. Your question drips with evidence that the two of you, you and your husband, are guilty of what I would refer to as world-class micromanagement. Now listen, your daughter is a senior in high school, 17 years old, soon to be 18, soon to be able to join the military, soon to be able to vote, and a generally sensible person whose only, quote, crime, end quote, is that of wanting to be alone with her boyfriend who is equally guilty where she is concerned. Well, that sounds normal to me. In fact, it sounds downright reasonable. For purposes of the present discussion, micromanagement, I called it world-class micromanagement, uh, most micromanagement is in fact world-class, is the attempt to control someone who, one, cannot be controlled or two, has demonstrated the ability to exercise reasonably good self-control. For micromanagement to work, both of those conditions must be false. In other words, the person must be able to be controlled, and the person who is being micromanaged has demonstrated an inability to exercise reasonably good self-control. I hope that's clear. If both of those conditions are true, the way I just stated them, then micromanagement may work. If either condition, as I just stated, it is false, however, then micromanagement won't work and the anxiety-driven attempt to make it work is going to create a boatload of problems. There will be times in a child's life when micromanagement is both feasible and necessary during infancy and toddlerhood, for example. Uh, Infants and toddlers do not have good self-control. Infants and toddlers 
can be controlled. Therefore, micromanagement will work because both of those conditions are in place. As a child matures, however, the need for micromanagement decreases or certainly should decrease if parents have done a good job to that point of providing effective discipline to the child. It can certainly be argued that some teens, because they have demonstrated a serious inability to make good decisions, may need some degree of micromanagement from their parents and other adults. Regardless, the very teen who needs it, this is the paradox, is not going to accept it, is not going to submit to it. A teen who does not need micromanagement is not going to submit to it either. Therefore, micromanagement does not work with teenagers, period. It doesn't matter if the teenager needs the micromanagement or doesn't need the micromanagement. In either case, the teen is not going to accept it for two different and entirely different reasons. Your daughter has obviously demonstrated the ability to exercise good self-control. She is a good student. She is a moral kid. Uh, she uh, uh, accepts your rule, uh, however reluctantly. She's taken the chastity pledge. The attempt, therefore, to control her is going to cause lots of problems and solve absolutely none. That's what micromanagement always does. In fact, your attempt to micromanage your daughter is likely to result in the very problems you are trying to prevent. With the very best of intentions, you have become your own and her worst enemies. Invariably, micromanagement results in four very predictable problems. Deceit, disloyalty, conflict, and communication problems. I'll say them again because it's important. Deceit, lying, sneaking around. Disloyalty, a refusal to accept your values. Conflict, constant arguments, and communication problems. That's not what I said. Listen to me again, and so on and so forth. You have discovered that your daughter is right on the edge of trying to deceive you. One down, three to go. You and she are having conflict concerning your rules. Two down, two to go. Deceit and conflict go hand in hand with communication problems. Well, that's three down and one to go. And from there, it's a short step to disloyalty. The increasingly likely possibility that your daughter will decide to reject your values, values that you have worked for more than 17 years to instill in her. That's all four down the question I have for you, is the price worth it? You can still retrieve this situation, but you had better be ready to eat some crow. I strongly encourage you to sit down with her and say words to the following effect. We hope you know we only have your best interests in mind, but we have to admit We've made a mistake. We have been acting like you can't be trusted, when in fact you've given us absolutely no reason to believe that's the case. 
We have made our values and expectations perfectly clear to you. You're a smart person. You know what the consequences might be of violating our values. So, we trust you to do the right thing where this boy is concerned. From now on, we're going to stop trying to control your relationship with him. We are convinced you are capable of controlling it appropriately yourself. We love you. You know, there's a lot of people, and they bring legalism to parenting. And I will tell you, legalism, it, it, it hurts organizations. It hurts people. The rigidity of legalism just doesn't work. And where you find legalists, you find desperate people who are trying to control other people that won't be controlled. That is generally speaking the case. When legalism is brought into parenting, it creates as many problems as when legalism is brought into a church community. Does the approach that I've described, and let me go through that again, okay? We believe, this is what I'm recommending that uh, these parents say, We hope you know we have only your best interests in mind, but we have to admit we've made a mistake. We have been acting like you can't be trusted when, in fact, you've given us no reason to believe that that's the case. We've made our values and expectations perfectly clear to you. You're a smart person. You know what the consequences might be of violating them. So we trust you to do the right thing where this boy is concerned. From now on, we're going to stop trying to control your relationship with him. We are convinced you are capable of controlling yourself. We love you. Does this approach guarantee that no problems will develop? No. No one can make that guarantee. But believe me, these two people are far more likely to do the right thing if you communicate to them that you trust them to do the right thing than if you continue doing what you're currently doing and in so doing, communicate to them that you don't trust them. There's a self-fulfilling prophecy at work where trust is concerned. So the solution to this problem is quite simple. Just stop doing what you're doing. Let your daughter know you trust her and that you'll love her. I'm John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. We are a parenting show. The number is 404-419-6499. You can email me your questions if you'd prefer that medium at radio at rosemond, R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. I occasionally make reference to my various books on the program, and if you're interested in any of them, including my latest, published by Tyndale, a reputable Christian publisher, the title of the book, Grandma Was Right After All, in which I seek to recover the wisdom of bygone days by resurrecting what parents of yesteryear tended to say, things like, children should be seen and not heard, and you made this bed, you're going to lie in it. These are parenting principles. They all sprang from a biblical worldview, principles from the good old days that are just as valid today and will help your kids succeed in life. More information is available on my website at johnroseman.com. Our producer on Because I Said So, Rich Rosel, with assistance from Lisa Wysikowski, 
Our calls were handled by Thomas Rosel, and uh, I'm John Roseman, psychologist, syndicated columnist, author, public speaker, and now radio talk show host. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again next weekend. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network.